I didn't realize there was a shortlist. I assumed that there was no one else. <laughs> and I was actually scared stiff to be asked to speak because I'm the outsider who comes to these meetings um, among elite academics. And I thought my role was to come and to learn and to marvel, but never to contribute. But then I thought, perhaps you, the academics, need to know why the Ibn Arabi society is not a closed shop for the cognoscenti, but open to all who are seeking light on a spiritual path. The hard work you do of those long hours of study, deep real purpose for ordinary people like me. And of course, in your action, you fulfill a divine purpose. So, some boring stuff about me. I'm probably a, quite a typical product of my time. In a century marked by increased travel and communication, my own life reflects diverse and confusing influences. I was born in Saigon, got out on the last boat that wasn't torpedoed. Uh, I don't remember it, I was f about three days old. I had an early childhood in Cairo where I was a kidnapped target in the Arab struggle against colonial oppression. I found myself at the age of six in England at a Catholic convent boarding school where I had several relatives who were nuns. Um, they were horrible. Um, <laughs> and I was too small for the school uniform, relentlessly bullied because of my American accent. This was a scene from Lowood Hall in Jane Eyre. But I did have one good memory in the form of the school priest. He was so old, I thought he was already dead. His name was Father Damien. He had a luminous, translucent whiteness. He came into a class every time with a mantra. He said, God is in heaven. He is all around you, and he is in you. He loves you and he always will. I shut my eyes and I knew he was telling the truth, as children of six do. My next important influence was my dance teacher, Daphne Dashba. Real name. I was a natural athlete. I got to junior national and Olympic trials in two of my sports, but I did not value these achievements at all. And looked in sense at, instead at, in awe at the grace and elegance uh, of perfect movements of those who were doing ballet. So I enrolled in the classes. Miss Dashba's summary of my achievement was, she tries to try. <laughs> the rest of my life has incorporated these two dilemmas an inner sense of an existential truth and an outer reality that whatever my apparent abilities, the essence of life and its person, purpose was not contained in my achievements. So, I was brought up a Catholic, memorized the Gospels in Latin, was trained in dialectics by the Jesuits. I knew there was something more, but I got diverted by career marriages and so on until a more intense period period of spiritual search in my 40s led me through dreams to Islam, much to my surprise. Even then I hit a wall of confusion rather than clarification. There were bad translations of Arabic into unintelligible English, um, empty parochial forms of religious practice which was no difference to Catholicism. 
The monastic tradition of Catholicism seemed to be reflected in Sufism, but in the communities I joined in London, there was little real spiritual guidance and a lot of spiritual and material fraud. Wandering on, I met Ridwan Ishaq, who brought me to a meeting of this society. And I felt I was home at last. Finally, like the invitation from Father Damien as a child, I was being introduced to a real spiritual path, not through a church or a mosque or a religious community, but through the careful translation and interpretation of a great medieval Muslim mystic and his contemporaries. I ask, is this unique? It is who you are. This society has attracted seekers from all countries and all spiritual paths, which makes sense. Truth is one. How can truth hover between alternatives? So, what is the path of this great master? This is where I dumbed things down a bit. Three stages are clear. There's consciousness, there's being, and there's becoming. First and most blindingly obvious is the necessity to deeply understand, to know who we are. And I'm really happy to see another translation of Know Yourself, because that was one of my first influences. None of the many excursions in spiritual thinking led me to the clarity of Ibn Arabi's description that our essence is a manifestation of God's names and our spiritual task is the unveiling of that essence. From that comes the recognition of the divine source in everything. Our journey is through experience, reflection, right practice and our deepening spiritual vision informing action. Ibn Arabi's own advice on how to study the Futuhat indicates the student must bring his intellect in which he must understand the different disciplines and relates them to the entirety of the creation and the social world. But the inner journey to enable the transformation to a spiritual vision and remove the cloud of the strident human personality. Sorry. Oh, that's all right. So the dynamic between the two is the steady transformation of our own mirage. The Shaker's teacher is not only speaking from his own authentic spiritual vision, but he has a deep understanding of the many pitfalls of the spiritual path. And he describes three knowledges, the intellect, the knowledge of states, and the knowledge of secrets. But there's a dilemma communicating through the intellect knowledge which is obtained by inner vision. It's a known trap. Abu Huraira, who is the most prolific of the Hadith writers, said, I have written down half of what I know of the Prophet's teachings. If I wrote the other half, my throat would be cut. There's an ayat well known. God it is who created the seven heavens and the earth like them. The divine command descends through them. Ibn Abbas said, if I were to mention the Prophet's interpretation of this, you would stone me. Ibn Arabi does let us see from his own experience what happens when the intellect is tamed in the service of a spiritual vision, which is the inner journey of the heart. The Sheikh is insistent that the work for this journey is essential for each of us, quoting the Quran, 
on the day of rising we will say indeed we were heedless of this and indeed we were doing wrong to read the revelations of the sheikh's own journey from the Fusus for the Futahat, those poetry, is an inspiration, but is not a substitute for our own authentic journey. In the Futuhat it says, the heart is not gladdened except by what it knows for sure to be true. The intellect can't enter here because this knowledge is not within its grasp. Also in the Futuhat, Ibn Arabi is clear in his description of the lower ranks of the spiritual paths, but admits that he disguises the credo of the spiritual elite, introducing it as scattered vignettes, which will be recognized only by those with a prepared heart at that level. Even in the Quran, there are many examples of the evolution of the spiritual path, but the one I like is the last three verses of al talking about the Quran itself. One verse says, those who listen to the Quran, it will be a mercy to them. The next verse talks of those who recite the Quran, that it will influence their lives. And then, those who know will worship. Because at that level, the last veil has gone. So, we understand the point of this journey from the Hadith where Allah, speaking through the Prophet, says, The servant comes close to me with worship and good works until I love him. And when I love him, I become the eyes with which he sees and so on. We know that. Only then will we really understand the meaning of La ilaha illallah. Because we'll, we will have reached the transformation to which we aspire. So, to come down to the mundane, how do I get from here to there? Big question asked to G.K. Chesterton, he said, don't start from here. <laughs> but I find myself in this, in this place. For this authentic journey to do the work of worship and so on, Malcolm Gladwell, the social scientists, in his analysis of successful people like Bill Gates, Steve Jones and the Beatles, points out that they were not lucky. They had committed more than 10,000 hours to the task for which they became famous. So if I prayed five hours a day, that would be five and a half years. Since two hours is more realistic, that's 12 and a half years. But why do we not make that effort when for the treasures of infinity when we make it for the ephemeral things of this world? And it's not as simple as counting prayer beads when you're watching Law and Order. To enter true prayer, <laughs> it has to be the dialogue in which you do not exist and you are alone with the alone. This is the journey of all universal religions. Before I became Muslim, I was sustained by T.S. Eliot. In the Four Quartets, he points out that prayer is more than an order of words, the conscious occupation of the praying mind or the sound of the voice praying. He explains that you have to leave behind the self. He says, to arrive at where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way in which there is no ecstasy. 
In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. And he is clear that this is a lifelong journey. We shall not see from, from exploration. And at the end of all our exploring will be to arrive at where we started from and know the place for the first time. I look forward to seeing Father Damien. And we reach a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. So this is my journey, and I look forward greatly to the next conference, where I hope I will learn a lot more. So what are the 21st century? What would Ibn Arabi be interested in at this time? I think he might be fascinated by some of the scientific developments. The science of cosmology, as opposed to mystical cosmology in the last 50 years, has led, and Wally will know more about this, has led to deep new understanding of the nature of the universe is, and I put a plural on them. I'm a fan of Sir Martin Rees, the Astronomer Royal, who received the Templeton Prize for Religion last year. I would love the Society to invite him to address one of their meetings, even though he does not connect his understanding of the majesty of the universe with God. We know now that the universe is 12.5 billion light years, the further stars receding, and this is only one of several universes. We're, we are an insignificant planet in an insignificant galaxy. And the presence of man on Earth represents a tiny fraction of its existence. More later, our galaxy depends on the sun, which has been in existence four and a half billion years and has six billion years roughly before it evolves blows up or something. Man, therefore, is only at the beginning of his evolutionary complexity because man in age versus the sun is roughly a quarter of a second. Man in age versus the universe is something called a femosecond, which I don't know what it is, but it's very short. Thinking of this, we know in Quran there are endless ayahs on know about the creation of the heavens. And when you look at the complexity of the heavens and then the inner complexity of man, we do become relevant because the evolutionary complexity of who we are is also totally extraordinary. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, I'm fascinated by quantum physics. I went to CERN earlier this year and I'm going again in two weeks. The search for the knowledge of the first particles released at Big Bang unites Russians and the West, Pakistan and Iran, and more or less anyone else on the planet who couldn't care less who they are, except they are searching for this extraordinary truth. The computer farm supporting it is second in size only to Google, and it's to no purpose other than knowing how did the creation start. Biology. I'm fascinated by Miriam Rothschild. She's my heroine because she never took an exam, but she, got a f she became a fellow of the Royal Society. I think that's cute. 
She was bullied at school, hanked out of school by her rich family, and became fascinated by what she could see through a microscope, and ultimately became an expert on fleas. I heard her addressing um, uh, with Sue Lawley on Desert Island Discs, and she was advertising her book. And she said, my dear, it's got a pornographic picture on the cover, <laughs> which of course was very dramatic. And she said, it's an electron microscope picture of the vagina of a flea, and it's beautiful. <laughs> so we have to understand that God's mystery extends everywhere. Next time you're squashing a flea, remember that. <laughs> because I found myself an orphan in Islam, like Malcolm X, I became devoted to the pilgrimage of Hajj because the mystery of the Kaaba and the tomb of the Prophet dwarfed any sectarianism that existed. If Ibn Arabi was here now, I'm not sure he would be happy with the sea of marble and concrete that now submerges the holy sites. There is a giant clock tower now in Mecca that completely dwarfs the tiny Kaaba, and it looks like a one-eyed Dajjal. It seriously looks like the beginning of the end of the world. The journey is perilous physically and spiritually, but in spite of everything that the Saudi authorities try to do and the chaos of three million pilgrims, the light of Allah and the Prophet cannot be extinguished. Finally, has this spiritual journey, as yet in its infancy, made any difference at all in my work as a physician? I'm depressed that with increasing scientific complexity and medical knowledge and government cost consciousness in the practice of medicine, is, it's becoming soulless and formulaic. I was sacked from the NHS 30 years ago, so I have a little more room for some of my own somewhat eccentric style. And I just... <laughs> will stop laughing. <laughs> I just thought I would mention two stories. One is my best friend from school, Veronica. We were unlikely friends, but we found ourselves in the same dormitory at the age of seven. She developed a uh, gynecological cancer, and ultimately the time came when things were getting a bit tough. And she said to me that she thought that maybe things were going badly because the doctors had stopped examining her. And she had this big swollen belly. So I felt her tummy. I said, oh my God, I said, they've made a wrong diagnosis. No wonder they're not examining you anymore. She said, what is it? I said, well, you're pregnant. She had two sons. She's absolutely thrilled with her pregnancies. She was 62. But you know, Sarah, we've got examples in, I said, this isn't a baby, it's an angel. I can feel the feathers. So for the next few months, we, every time I saw her, up went her, her shirt and I felt her tummy and we discussed the evolution of how she was going to give birth to herself as an angel. And in her final admission, she said, you know, she always wanted to hear from me what they were going to do now. And I said, well, I said, the time has come for the baby to be born. And a few days later, she said, what's happening now? And I said, you're going into labor. 
and she just grinned from ear to ear. She was so happy. It was actually commented on by the oncologist as the strangest <laughs> experience they'd had of a person dying of cancer, because we never stopped laughing. Um, a different story. Adam, rightly named. There's a tradition in Harley Street that a proportion of patients are treated for free. And recently, on the recommendation of someone who had heard me, but I didn't know who he was, this young man arrived. He was hopelessly high on drugs. Um, he needed, he said, to take drugs just to be able to get out of his home. He was that bad. He had HIV, but his brief to me was that he wanted to get fit enough to go to New York to receive an award. I heard later from someone else that the reward was for the International Rent Boy of the Year. And that was a year ago. He returned dissatisfied. And he was curious that after several drug detoxes, what he was getting from me was something different. He left drugs and he left his day job. He's now a student in college. He's in a hostel. He's receiving good career support and he's attending a Buddhist center. I have daily text and email and telephone contact with him on his search for reality, for beauty, and for divine love. What binds us is caritas, a true love, and we are on a shared spiritual journey. He's on medicines, but I'm not sure how relevant they are to his profound change. But I do know that no medical journal or society would be interested in this account of two different ways of treating a patient. So like Ibn Arabi, I've learned to shut up. So my journey continues. Das, Daphne Dashba was right. I try to try, but I don't feel so lost anymore. And I know I have a long way to go. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.